Okay, Ross, today we're gonna to talk a little bit about why Mormons don't drink coffee. You know, if, if anybody out there knows a Mormon, maybe you grew up Mormon, maybe you just, you're listening to our podcast because you're trying to understand your Mormon neighbor, that's great. Why do Mormons not drink coffee? We're not just gonna talk about coffee. We're gonna talk about some other distinctive LDS practices that are out there because if you, if you jump on Google, and you just, in fact, I encourage people to do this. I encourage people to type in, do Mormons, and see what Google auto fills for that. Do Mormons drink coffee is going to be one of the high ones. Do Mormons uh, wash their hair? Do they wear I makeup? I was surprised do, to see that one, yeah. Can, can they eat French fries? There's all kinds of stuff. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to jump into all that, but we are going to talk about coffee today. We're going to talk about undergarments. Do, do Mormons wear secret underwear? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about food storage just to get started. There's so much more, right, we could talk about Ross, but we've picked at least these three. Yeah, there's many things we could talk about because uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons have a whole unique culture that's built, built around their religious beliefs. And so they do certain things distinctively based on their beliefs and based on partly on the fact that they lived in isolation from the rest of America for many years in the Utah Territory, far from uh, the mainstream. And, um, and so it's interesting that some of the things that are unique to Mormonism, more unique practices, are not bad ideas. Um, they're a little different from maybe most of American culture. Some of them are, are, are even, could even be endorsed biblically, but not all of them, of course. And there's some, also mm -hmm. some things that are pretty far away from the mainstream that would be, uh, most Americans would find to be odd. And so uh, well, let's explore some of those. Okay, so let's start with coffee. And the, the whole coffee thing dates all the way back to the Joseph Smith days, and it, and it has to do with something called the Word of Wisdom. So give us a little background on this. What is the Word of Wisdom? When did it come out in the Mormon Church? And then how is it enforced, I guess, today in the Mormon Church? Yeah, the Word of Wisdom is actually one chapter of the Mormon Scripture called uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the 89th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, it was issued by the church, or it was revelation by God, they would say, to Joseph Smith um, in the 1830s. And so basically it's a, it's a dietary code, a health code. And um, it's interesting that there are stories about how it came about, and those are, there's various folklore about that, but apparently... You know, they were having meetings, the men were having meetings, and, um, and, and the use of tobacco and chewing tobacco and alcohol and so forth became pretty obnoxious. And so they decided they needed to ban those substances. And some people joke that, you know, they, had, they couldn't leave the women out, um, so they had to ban a couple things that the women would have to sacrifice too, and so coffee and tea are also on the list. Uh, so basically the whole idea is that there are certain prohibited substances and certain recommendations for how a person ought to eat, what they ought to partake of in order to be um, healthy. That's the main thing in the, in the Word of Wisdom, but also to conform to God's purposes. Okay, I've got a couple of questions, because people listening to this might, when they think of this concept of a Word of Wisdom, they might, I don't know, for me, Ross, 
that sounds a little bit like something maybe like a charismatic church would do is we'd we'd have a special word that God has for the congregation. I, I, I grew up in a church like that, so someone might sort of speak out in the middle of a service. I know this is maybe weird for other for some Christian traditions, but not for my Christian tradition to have like a special message from God. But in this case, we're saying, when we say word of wisdom, we're talking about a one specific thing. Like, do they have continuing word of wisdoms, words of wisdom in the Mormon church? Or is this, when they say word of wisdom, is are they always talking about uh, drinking coffee and Coke and stuff like right. that? Right. They don't, they don't have a sense of what you're talking about is rooted in 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about different spiritual gifts. And it says some will have you know, knowledge, wisdom, and, and can offer a word mm-hmm. in the moment of wisdom to others. And no, this is a one-time thing. This is called the word of wisdom. And it's basically called that because it's um, trying to advise with, with wise principles on how they should lead their life. So if, if I hear a Mormon say to another Mormon, are you following the word of wisdom? Then what they're talking about this in particular. Think about it with capital W's. Hmm. Right, so it's not generic. It's a specific thing. And again, if you go back and look at the word of wisdom, and again, if you if you want to do your homework on this, we'll put links in the show notes below. But it's this is from section eighty nine in the Doctrine and Covenants. Again, that's one of Mormonism's standard works. It's not from a biblical perspective. It's not what Christians would believe would take as scripture. But Mormons would take this as scripture. Doctrine and Covenant, Covenants eighty nine. It says at the, at the beginning of that section, Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Kirtland, Ohio, February 27th, 1833. Now, Ross, there's a lot of, there's kind of a lot, people can read this for themselves. There's a lot of stuff in there, but my understanding is is the Mormons today don't really think about everything that's in there from 1833. There's just a few things that really they still focus on Yeah, today. the majority of what's in there they, they focus on and elevate. So just to make it clear what we're talking about here, uh, the word of wisdom prohibits the use of alcoholic beverages. So Mormons not only don't drink coffee, but they don't drink alcohol. And many of them are known for that in in the culture around us. And they're also probably known for the fact that um, tobacco is prohibited by the word of wisdom. So any kind of um, smoking or, or chew or snuff or cigars or whatever... And then um, the third thing that's a little more ambiguous, but uh, it, the way it's interpreted today is tea and coffee. Now, the text of the Word of Wisdom itself specifically says hot drinks. And so, you know, that's pretty broad. But uh, LDS prophets over the years have taught that that means tea and coffee. Okay, so, and, and they say that applies even if you don't drink them hot. If you have a of, an, of a cold brew coffee, it's still coffee, and it still violates the word of wisdom. Or iced tea still violates the word of wisdom. Okay, so that's what it prohibits. The word of wisdom prohibits alcohol, mm-hmm. tobacco, tea, coffee. But and I, this was new for me to hear too, Ross. It actually encourages some things. I didn't realize that this was part of the word of wisdom because living in Utah here, we don't hear this side of it very much. We'll talk about that here in a second. But it actually encourages some things as well. So it discourages some of the vices, what they might call vices, but then it encourages some other stuff. Yeah, it encourages fruits and wholesome herbs. That's the language of the Word of Wisdom, and the uh, leadership of Mormonism has interpreted that as including vegetables. So fruits and vegetables are good. Uh, Grains are good. Grains are called the staff of life in the Word of Wisdom. 
meat this is where this is where it's interesting where this is not enforced meat is good if it's used sparingly and it specifically says if it's used it should be used in winter or in cold or in times of famine and that's interpreted by by hmm. LDS people in different ways but by and large that's pretty much ignored by mo- most Latter-day Saints you know every town in Utah has a burger joint and so hmm. so that's one that it, it's kind of interesting to see that the prohibitions are where the emphasis has been put, not on the encouragements. Okay, so for you, just real quick, for you growing up Mormon, which, how did you view the Word of Wisdom? Which parts of it did you follow? Which parts of, of it did you really kind of ignore? It didn't really seem to apply to you. Yeah, our family and people around us in our faith community, in the Mormonism, we definitely, nobody would ever, ever, uh, drink alcohol or smoke. Coffee was totally uh, nobody would ever think of of coffee. Coffee was like off limits, and um, tea tea was a little bit more of a gray area because there's herbal tea, and because in the past it was interpreted that something the, the thing that must be about coffee and tea must be the caffeine, mm. and so for a long time in LDS church culture, by and large, caffeinated soft drinks were also frowned upon at least, not forbidden by the church. So you go in, you know, if you, if, if you want to become worthy of going to the temple, you have to ha- be interviewed. You're going to be interviewed about how you keep the word of wisdom. Your bishop would say, well, if you've drunk coffee, then you're not qualified to go in the temple. Your bishop mm. would never say, oh, you'd had a, you had a caffeinated Pepsi. That, that doesn't disqualify you. But in culture, popular culture, for example, BYU did not sell caffeinated soft drinks. In their um, in their student uh, cafeteria or at football games or whatever. So when I was growing up, those were pretty much understood that they were kind of softly forbidden. But the the other ones were definitely forbidden. We never talked really about the positive things about how to eat healthy, and we had plenty. Our our we, our family had plenty of meat. So when you so when you thought about growing up, when you thought about the word of wisdom, you really thought about it in terms of coffee, alcohol. Maybe Coke, possibly. Yeah, and definitely uh, tobacco. And tobacco. Okay, so I'm looking at the word. Of, I'm looking at Doctrine and Covenants 89 right now, and I, yeah, I don't see anything about caffeine in there. So that one no. was sort of an interpretation later, kind of a cultural interpretation over time that that sort of crept into the sort of the common culture of of Mormonism, at least Utah right. Mormonism. And it's crept back out again. Um, so now BYU, you can buy a a Coke. Mm. Um, so the, the, the church has clarified that, and it says, when we, you know, coffee and tea is not because of caffeine, it's just because that's what it means. So, you know, you can, you can, you can drink your soft drinks now. Okay, let's go back to 1833 and the years following. How was, how was this word of wisdom sort of seen back then, and how has it changed over the decades in the Mormon church? Yeah, originally it was seen just as like wise advice. Okay, it was seen as a, some principles that would help your life, that would be, would be good to Im- employ. So, for example, early leaders of Mormonism drank alcohol. Joseph Smith drank wine. It's in his diaries that he would stop off at somebody's house and they'd have a glass of wine. Brigham Young used snuff, which is, al- which is tobacco, and he, he drank wine at times. Um, in, so in Brigham Young's day, the emphasis, say, for example, with alcohol was not so much on uh, a pure 
prohibition, but it was on trying to limit the excesses of alcohol use or abuse. But over time, after, say, the turn of the, of the 20th century and the years following, the word of wisdom became more and more enforced as kind of, you could call it a boundary marker, that culture, cultural anthropologists talk about boundary markers as things that set us apart from them, you know, that, that set us apart as unique, any cultural group. And so Mormons began to identify the word of wisdom as a way to say we're distinct, we're unique, we're a peculiar people to, to the Lord because we have these, we're more scrupulous about these use of these things than other people around us. And so now it's actually strictly enforced that you know, nobody's going nobody's to come around and you know, confiscate your secret stash of coffee. But, as I said earlier, when you want to go to the Mormon temple, you're interviewed about your worthiness, and if you are not living up to the word of wisdom, then you don't qualify. Okay, so let's talk about it today then, some of the, some of the stats that we can pull. And, you know, stats are only as valuable as, I don't know, I don't know if they're valuable at all, but there are some statistics you can find on this. It'd be interesting to talk with our Mormon friends about this from their experience. But I, you know, living in Utah for over 20 years, I've noticed definitely a change in this. I, I've definitely have noticed that there's been a loosening and a transition and, and more and more Mormons drink coffee. And so some of the statistics that we found is a third of current Mormons reported consuming coffee. Ross, do you think that sounds like a pretty accurate number from your understanding? Yeah, it's hard to note to parse that number, um, because does that mean they had one cup of coffee once, you know, or within yeah. the past year, or how often, or or whatever? And so, I think that the interesting thing about the statistics or the value in these is just just to illustrate what you mentioned, Brian, is that the culture seems to be changing mm-hmm. with respect to the the word of wisdom. So yeah. It used to be like, okay, if you want to go somewhere where you know there's no LDS people, you just go to a coffee shop. But that's not the case anymore because even observant Mormons will still want to get, um, maybe get a a frou-frou drink that doesn't have coffee in it, Mm. Um, uh, you know, or still hang out there to meet people, uh, meet friends or whatever. So there, there is a changing sense with all of these things. I think tobacco less than the rest. Tobacco still has maybe a lot of stigma. Alcohol still has a lot of stigma, but less so among younger people. Yeah, so a third of current Mormons reported consuming coffee and a quarter reported consuming alcohol. So coffee is becoming more acceptable than alcohol, which that makes sense to me, and only a sixth reported using tobacco. But what's interesting is the generational differences. Mm -hmm. Right. With alcohol... 14% 14% of boomers compared to 29% of millennials. Yeah, so, so boomers, people are older, their tr- Mormonism is more traditional. One in seven would say, yeah, we've, I've tried alcohol like, in the past year. But mm-hmm. like almost a third of, of, the, of younger, 30-something LDS people say, yeah, you know, I've tried alcohol. And it's, there's also, along with that, is, is a change not only in practice but in attitude where the boomers, if you ask them, is abstaining from alcohol essential to be considered a good Mormon? 75% of the boomers say, yes, absolutely. Hmm. And under 50% of the millennials would say, yes, you have to abstain from uh, alcohol to be considered a good Mormon. 
Yeah, that's interesting because that's maybe even more. That's an, maybe an even more important statistic because it does show their attitude, right? So, more than twenty-five percent of these boomers are failing, but they're saying, "I I know I'm messing up. I reckon I might have had a drink, but I know it's wrong." And we're seeing that percentage drop. Millennials are a lot more gray on on that. They consider it more of a gray area than a black and yeah, white. Yeah, they, would, like they wouldn't say, "Oh, it's wrong. Oh, it's totally wrong." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What about does does it? What about marijuana? Right. This is a new thing in our culture today. Now, the word of wisdom doesn't really address marijuana. You don't expect it to. But how do Mormons would they categorize this? I guess under a word of wisdom. Yes. Yeah, so the word of wisdom casts a, a broader umbrella. I'm glad you brought this up because it casts a broader umbrella to also include the way it's applied. And understandably, it would include any kind of illegal substance, any kind of illegal drug use. Um, would, so that includes marijuana, but I don't know, you know, where, where it's legal, I think they would still say that it's in the category of alcohol. Alcohol is legal, but it's forbidden. And even in states where marijuana is legal, I think it's still forbidden by the LDS church. So they have this, this ethos that's driven by the word of wisdom that says, well, we're going we're gonna to cast that umbrella broad, more broadly over other things. Okay, now I want to talk about underwear. But before we get to that, I just I think we have to pause a second, Ross, and say about this whole word of wisdom thing and coffee and alcohol and all that stuff. What does the Bible say? Like, okay, so if this is just a cultural distinctive, that's fine. Every church, every group has cultural distinctives. Like, is is this that big of a deal? And in order to answer that, I think we need to look at the Bible. Does the Bible actually tell us anything about alcohol or coffee or what we eat or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, the Bible does have some boundaries about food, but not like this. So the Bible makes it clear that with respect to alcohol, for example, it's not right to be drunk. Don't, don't be drunk. But the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol, absolutely. Jesus turned water to wine. Um, the Old Testament says that God gave human beings wine to gladden the heart. So there's a place for a legitimate use of alcohol, but within within reason, because it, it does a lot of damage in a lot of people's lives. And, and so, uh, biblically, the boundary that's set there is very clear. Don't let it take control of you. Don't be drunk. There's no, there's no biblical uh, reference with any other kind of food that's prohibited. Now, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of foods that were prohibited by the law of Moses that were considered unclean. But when Jesus came, Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you that, that those foods... By imbibing or eating those foods, that's not going to make you wrong with God. That's not going to make you unclean. What makes you unclean is what comes out of your heart. So Jesus declared all foods clean or all foods mm. acceptable or permissible in a relationship with God. And in fact, it can even become a negative. So in, in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul warns us about ascetic practices, about people who say, don't eat, don't drink, don't do this, don't do that, and, and who've raised the bar so high that the spirituality is m- measured not by your relationship with Jesus, but by you know, whether or not you're um, depriving yourself of more stuff than other people are depriving themselves of. So there are, okay. there are principles that apply broadly to different kinds of um, food and drink. Yeah, full disclosure here, I grew up in a church that basically taught that, kind of like Mormonism, they taught that alcoholism is wrong, period, all alcohol. Not just having a little bit here or there, but 
alcohol is just wrong. So really the church I grew up in, it was a Christian church, but it it really took a stance, a very hard line stance like the Mormon church does. Now it didn't take that stance on coffee, but it, I would say, yeah, it took that stance on alcohol and cigarettes for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me growing up and, and getting, moving into my twenties, um, I had, and I, and I was a good, I was a good follower. You know, I believed it. So I was a teetotaler and I had to do this, what I would encourage any Mormon listening right now, right? I had to look at God's word, which is, I believe just the Bible. I had to look at the Bible and I, I had to say, what does the Bible actually say? Not, not what does my culture say? Not what does my pastor say? I mean, not that I want to throw that all out altogether. I just want to say, I, I need to check that against the Bible. Um, because I want to be living biblically. And I, I remember when I, when I married my wife, Tracy, she really challenged me on this because she didn't have such a hard line stance like I did. And at first I looked at her with judgment in my heart and I had to, and then I realized she was right and I was wrong. I realized that biblically speaking, what you just said, Ross, that actually the Bible doesn't prohibit all drinking period, end of discussion. It says, don't get drunk. So, you know, I, I always encourage people when you look at this, what's, how, do you, how do you make decisions like this? If you're a biblical Christian, you let God's word dictate how we should live. And sometimes that means calling into question that the stuff that you thought was true and right and biblical that maybe just isn't. You know, maybe it's not, maybe it's just cultural more than anything else. Right. And, and you know, that, that raises a great point because. There are substances that are available to us today that weren't available in the first century. The first yeah. century world that Jesus lived in, uh, they didn't know tobacco. And so tobacco was introduced around the world later. But um, so, so that's where we have to have the, these underlying biblical principles. So in, like in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a couple principles. It says, it says everything is permissible for me, but not everything uh, is beneficial. So I'm going to ask, wait, is this, is using tobacco beneficial for me? Mm, probably not. Probably get lung cancer or you know get yellow teeth or whatever. Um, and then and then in the same passage he says everything is permissible for me, but I don't want to be mastered by anything. So is it is something that I am free to use? Is it going to create an addiction or a habit? Is it habit forming? Is it going to become a, a master over me, which is where tobacco or alcohol or other things for many other people, chocolate. Um, could become that for for other people. So there's these larger principles that apply that help us to apply scripture to things that aren't specifically even spelled out in the Bible. Okay, enough about coffee. We could talk about that all day, but we've got to talk about tidy whities because because Mormons have special undergarments. Now some people might know that, some people might not know that. Again, if you're listening to this in your LDS, uh, it'd be super interesting to know if you wear these and why you wear these. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here. But but the for the non-Mormon listeners, they're probably saying, what in the world are you talking about? So Ross, tell us about special undergarments. Tell us if you ever wore them as a Mormon. And if you did, do you still wear them today? All these, so many questions. <laughs> yeah, this is an intriguing thing because it's one of the things that sets LDS people apart as different from you know, everybody else. Let me get, give you some background on this. Uh, worthy Mormons go to the temple to participate in sacred rituals that they look at as essential to salvation. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about the temple in a future episode. 
and, and so we'll unpack a lot of that. But once a person's been initiated into the temple, so these are the, these are the cream of the crop, the Mormons who are most invested in it, who are, who are living up to the standards more than others. Once they're initiated into the temple ritual, they start wearing this temple garment, it's called it. It's called the garment of the holy priesthood or the temple garment. And it, it's seen as a sign, a daily sign that reminds you every single day of um, the, the covenants that you made to God in the temple. And so it's, it's just kind of a constant way to, like, I don't know, Christians do that in other ways. They might wear a cross around their neck. Most of us don't, uh, like, put on a whole set of clothing that reminds us of our relationship with Jesus. But in their mind, that's the, that's the function of this special temple garment, that it reminds them of who they are, of their um, experiences in the temple, and of what those mean to them. Okay, well, I've got so many questions for you, Ross. Okay, so first of all, this is only for temple-worthy Mormons. So, like, if I became a Mormon next week, they wouldn't, they wouldn't issue me uh, a set of undergarments to start wearing immediately. I've got to sort of earn them? Is that the right way to think well, about you have it? Well, you have to be initiated into the ritual. And to be initiated into the temple ritual, you have to... Uh, have proven yourself worthy at, at some f- basic level. So you could go to the temple as a brand new Mormon. It'd probably take you a year before you were given a permit to go to the temple. As long as you lived up to all the expectations that you have to keep the word of wisdom, for example, as we said before, and some other things too, a number of other things to get okay. checked off to go to the temple. So where do I get where do I get these undergarments? Let's say I I do the thing, I check it off. Do I jump on Amazon? Do I, can I get them at Target? Where do I buy these? these no, things? you have to get them from authorized um, LDS church distributors, and you have to be able to demonstrate you have the when you're when you're worthy to go to the temple through the interview process. They'll issue you a temple recommend card. That's like your pass to get in. You're gonna they're gonna card you at the door of the temple. And, and that's also required for you to be able to buy the temple garment. Okay, can you buy these at the temple? No, it's at the distribution center. I think, I don't know that you can buy them at the temple. I think you have to go to the distribution center. Okay. All right. Is it a onesie? Are they There's two tops parts. and bottoms? There's okay. two parts. Both men and women have a top and a bottom. Um, they're white. They have certain... Um, little symbols stitched in, embroidered into in certain places that are supposed to remind you of the temple ritual. And um, you would wear, you wouldn't, if you wouldn't, you wouldn't, if you're, let's say a guy, for example, okay, I'm not going to wear my temple garment over or under my boxers. It's going to be my underwear, Mm. right? And so, so women have, you know, their own way of trying to figure out how that works. It's basically replaces or becomes my under my undergarment for everyday use by and large and do you wear it all the time like what's the what's the rule am i supposed to wear it 24 7 do i wear it all the time how does that work yeah it has been in the past it's been 24 7 now there's a this the, uh, the church just came out with a change on this very very recently just within the last uh, couple of months and that is they now they've stopped emphasizing day and night and now they're emphasizing continuously for the rest of your life. So they're making some allowance for mm. that. Now, historically, the temple garment used to be seen as sort of a protective amulet um, that 
you know, it's going to protect me from demonic attacks and spiritual forces. But a lot of, there's a lot of folklore in Mormonism about the, how the garment protects people from injury. So Bill Marriott, the, who is in charge of the restaurant, the, fame, the hotel chain, is a Mormon. And he tells a story about how um, he was on a boat, and he was boating, and the boat caught fire. And his, his body was burned, his clothes were burned off him, but, but the parts that were covered by his temple garment were not burned. And the temple garment itself was not burned. And so there's a lot of lore like that that, that circulates in Mormonism about how the temple garment has these uh, folkloric powers. Now that's not, a lot of Mormons would say that's just superstition. And the Mormon church doesn't officially um, endorse that or encourage that. But my point is, in bringing that up, is that in the past, there would be people who would never want to take their temple garment off ever. Mm-hmm. And you hear stories about Grandma, who when she was young, she in her temple garment, when she took a bath, she would take it off, except she would leave like one arm in, you know, outside of the bathtub, one arm was in the temple garment. Mm-hmm. And then she'd bathe the rest of her whole body and then dry off and then put the temple mar- the garment back on. So she never took it all the way off. Well, that that's changed a lot in terms of the way people practice uh, their use of temple garments um, today. But it, it, it's encouraged to be worn continually for the rest of your life. Okay, so can you see this? Like if I'm, if I'm going out to a business lunch with somebody, what, could I, would I be able to spot if they're wearing their temple garments? Uh, yeah, it, once, you're, once you know what you're looking for, you know, in general, so... So what are you looking um, for? There's a the certain neckline that men men have. I don't know about women, but there's a certain neckline in the men's t-shirt under there that is like a little bit lower than a t-shirt that I would wear. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like, okay, so I was traveling on an airplane uh, a couple month, couple weeks ago, and uh, there was a family that we were traveling uh, like from Utah to Florida. This family was on the plane. They, I thought... They looked like a Mormon family, a big family, and all clean cut and everything else. But they were talking about the chosen. You know, that's a Christian thing. A lot of Mormons like it. And then they, he had a WWJD bracelet on, and he had an anti-porn T-shirt on. I thought, well, maybe they're Christians. You know, maybe they're like not really Mormons. Maybe they're you know traditional Christians. And until like I saw him like bend over to pick up something that his daughter dropped. And I could see the gap between the top of his pants and the bottom of his shirt. And so there was revealed that he's wearing the temple garment. Hmm. So, you know, that's neither here nor there. That's no big deal. Um, but, well, but, it, you know. But is it? So here's my question. And may, I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm just kind of putting two and two together because I've noticed living in Utah for over 20 years. I've noted. I, now, I don't, I'm not very observant, but my wife is observant. And my wife always can tell if someone's wearing their undergarments because she knows what they look like. Again, mm-hmm. you can see the outline of it, right? Like you said, for yeah. guys, it's lower cut. So, And for girls, with... for women, it might be uh, like, it would be hard to wear like a sleeveless right. blouse or you'd have to wear a cap sleeve or something like that to cover up the garment. But So yeah, there are clues. There are clues. And I guess my, my point is, it, it to me, it would be hard for it not to turn into like a, tool that I would use if I was Mormon. Like, like for example, if I'm trying to make a sale, right? I'm a salesman and I'm going to go meet with somebody who doesn't go to my ward, but I want to signal to him that I'm Mormon. Now, I don't mean to be, look, I, 
I'm not trying to be suspicious of Mormons here, but I'm just I'm just trying to put two and two together. And it seems like in a community, if you had a simple way to signal that I'm LDS, and not just that I'm LDS, but that I'm a good LDS person, you know, because right. you have to be faithful, you have to be a card carrying, you have to be temple worthy. So it's, you know, right. So among Christians, you could wear a cross and say that, look, I'm a this signifies that I'm a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily tell me if you're all in or not, right? You might be just right. wearing it as jewelry for you, but am I am I just being a little bit a little bit too paranoid here, or is that a thing, Ross? Honestly, it's a thing in every group. Hmm. Every cultural group has its own ways of marking its um, your, your status and your um, you know your your whether you're in or out or how in you are and. And in the in the hierarchy of being in, how far up the hierarchy you are, every culture group has that, and that could I'm sure that can function for for some in the LDS cultural group as a way of saying you know yeah this is I want to make sure you know you know who I am. Well, yeah, let's so let's talk about that for Christians listening. You know, maybe you're sitting there listening in judgment, but have you ever worn something to church to try to seem more spiritual? Right? I mean, I think every every church has its own stuff, right? So, I mean, really, even just dressing up for church, sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself, do, do I think that this is, do, you, do I think I'm earning something with this? Do I think, am I signaling something with this? It's not wrong to dress up for church, but what's your motive behind it? Right, and so this, I think the same application would be made for, like, Christian T-shirts, like message T-shirts or ones that have a certain logo or brand, that just because I wear it doesn't mean I'm, I'm signaling anything, but I certainly could be, hmm. and I have to you know watch my heart about that. All right, one last question on this, Ross. Does the Bible require any kind of special clothing to reflect our commitment to Jesus? I mean, let's just let's make sure to address that. Like, is do the Mormons are they onto something here, or did they just tweak it a little bit? Like, what what's a biblical answer to that? There is no requirement of special clothing. Now, in the Old Testament, faithful Jews were required to wear, you know, tassels at the edge of their garments or what, whatever to, for prayer, for reminder. But we're not in the Old Covenant period anymore. Jesus came and fulfilled all of that. And so, I mean, you do have some Christians who wear special, special clothing, like if you're a nun or a priest and you wear the, the like the, uh, whatever they call that robe that the, that the priest wears... And other cultures have special clothing that they wear to mark them off, like the Sikhs with their turban. But for biblical Christians, uh, there, there really is no such thing. Now, the Bible would maybe tell us to dress modestly, okay? And that's another topic we'll get to. But, but no, there's no sense of, like, you have to have a certain kind of ratified clothing in order to somehow be right with God or to be worthy before God. Good thing. Good thing. All right. One last thing. We're almost out of time, but Ross, we've talked about coffee, why Mormons don't drink that and alcohol and all that stuff. We've talked about their, their special undergarments, their holy undergarments. And there's one more thing that at least if, you, if you're in Utah, at least if you're in Utah, that might sort of be a distinctive for Mormons. Now, maybe people outside of Utah know this about Mormons, but we know this for sure living in Utah, and that has to do with food storage. Tell us about Mormon food storage and why it's such a big deal for them. 
Yeah, this is something um, that I grew up. I grew up with the idea that you, we were all supposed to set aside two years' supply of food. And so my dad had shelves built in the garage, hanging from the garage ceiling, and we had these cans and cans of you know air, airtight, vacuum-packed uh, wheat and rice and dried beans and stuff like that, that if in case there was ever uh, apocalypse or some kind of uh, calamity, then we'd be prepared. So the, the church today talks about times of adversity. If we're prepared for times of adversity to take care of ourselves and to help our neighbor, that means we should have some food set aside. And I think it might be born out of the fact that in the early history of the Mormon church, they were you know, kind of ran out of a number of different places, and they did face a lot of opposition and persecution. There's also sort of a sort of an apocalyptic element of Mormonism. They believe that before Jesus returns again, that there could be really really tough times in the world, um, and so they this is their idea of wanting to be prepared for for those kind of things. Okay, so let's let's talk. We'll talk about that part in just a minute about what does the Bible say about the apocalypse and the end times and all those sorts of things. Because I, I actually think the Mormons are onto something here in a certain sense, but I I think it's really interesting if you move to Utah from out of state, and a ton of people have done that recently. You'll notice that this really impacts the way our homes are built in Utah. Ross, talk a little bit about that, because people from other parts of the country might be surprised to know that the architecture in Utah generally is kind of different from the architecture everywhere else. Yeah, it's, uh, well, in a number of ways. For, no, for one, there's a lot of bedrooms. But the other thing, what you're referring to is like there are special places that are commonly built into homes that are designed for food storage. So, for example, a lot of places, if you have a front porch, the basement area underneath the porch, which is kind of enclosed in the foundation walls, so it's cool down there. It's it's cool and dark, and so that becomes like your food storage room, and it's often called that, you know, by people instead of just like, hey, this is a corner of the basement that's under the porch. This is the food storage room. Yeah. And so there are elements like that, you know. Yeah, when we first started looking for a home more than 20 years ago in here in Utah, every home we went into, they made sure, the realtor made sure to show us the cold storage. Oh, and here's your cold storage. And finally, after two or three homes, we were like, what <laughs> is cold storage? What are you talking about? What is this, right? Because this isn't, I mean, certainly some homes might have that in other parts of the country, but it is kind of a must. It's a selling point if you want to be able to sell your home to a Mormon, which, of course, in Utah, most home buyers, at least back in the day, we're Mormon home buyers, so you'd be foolish to build a home without cold storage and meeting these needs because it was it was a spiritual thing, right? You're trying to be a good Mormon by right. having ample storage. To be prepared. And I think it's rooted a lot in the, the Mormon culture, coming across the plains and establishing a new homeland in the middle of the desert. There's this Mormon culture of self-sufficiency. And I think it plays into that idea that of self-sufficiency. We want to be able to take care of ourselves and each other. Yeah, so I would, I would categorize the first two things, the coffee, don't drink coffee or don't drink, you know, alcohol. I would categorize that along with the undergarments. I would categorize that as, I think, legalistic. I would, that's what I would say, that that comes across as legalistic and sort of righteous. You're trying to be righteous in your works. But the food storage one, I'm, I would put in a little bit of a different category. It, to me, it seems a little bit weird 
but I can understand why why people would want to do it. I, I actually think there's some wisdom to having some to be prepared, emergency preparedness. I think there's some wisdom to that. It's not just to me. It's not just uh, paranoia. I think there's some wisdom. But what does the Bible say, Ross? What does the Bible say about the apocalypse and the end times? And yeah. should we do something like this? The biblical idea is that things will get tough uh, before that before Jesus comes back, and He's coming back, and things could get really rough. There's a, a, a times of persecution and tribulation and so forth. But honestly, that. The Christian Church has been subject to persecution for two thousand years. It just depends on the time and the place. And so, you know, it is provident. The Bible has like two things that that are kept in in kind of tension with each other. One is in the Proverbs. It says, like, learn the lesson of the ant. The ant stows away food, you know, for the winter. It stores away food for when food's not available. But then on the other hand, Jesus says, oh, hey, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. They don't worry about what they're going to eat, and God provides for them. And so somewhere in the middle, there's a place where, yeah, we should take some thought to being well-prepared for, for things that might happen, realistically might happen. But ultimately, we're, we're just, we need to really be trusting God. Honestly, you might have a year's supply of food, and the apocalypse hap- you know, something calamitous happens in our, in our culture and society, you know, your, your neighbors who have firearms are going to come take your food. You know, I mean, real, realistically, how, how much is that your supply of food going to help? You still have to trust God. You still have to, to really rely on God's provision, because if things are bad, you know, they're going to be that bad. So it's a balance between taking meaningful preparatory action versus ultimately you know, I can have all the money in the bank, I can have all the food stored away, and, and that could, I could lose all that too. So I really have to trust God. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 6. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And then he says this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Man, that's wisdom. That is just timeless. Jesus spoke those mm-hmm. words 2,000 years ago, and they really resonate today and in any culture because every single one of us really needs to, like you said, Ross, we need to learn to trust in the God of the universe because we're not in control. We never, we never have been, and we never really will be at the end of the day. Yeah, God's promised to take care of his people. Well, that's why Mormons don't drink coffee and some other distinctive cultural beliefs of the Mormon church. If you want to learn more about this, if you want to read the discussion questions, have this conversation with a family, small group, or mentor, you can find these resources all online, pursuegod.org forward slash Mormonism. We'll see you next Monday. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.